Okay, we're in the book of Job this morning, if you want to start making your way there. That is in the Old Testament, Mike. Book of Job. Not a job, but Job. It's quite the job to understand Job sometimes, but we're going to talk about that. All right, let me open in prayer, and we'll start with the wisdom books and then Job. God, Holy Father, your word is holy to us. It is precious to us. We love your word, and we want to know it better as we read through it every year. Help help us to learn. Help us to be taught from Scripture. And uh, these wisdom books give us so much of your wisdom, wisdom that you've built into creation, wisdom that you've given mankind. And yet only the godly man, only those in Christ today can truly make use of your wisdom. And so we do pray that we would understand these books, especially Job today and next week. Help us to see how important it is to suffer in the right attitude, to trust in you, to know that you're sovereign no matter what comes in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're now moving into a new category of books. The first five books are grouped together in the Bible. That's called what? Pentateuch or Torah. And it's generally just referred to as the law. So when Jesus says the law and the prophets, or the law and the prophets and the writings, the law is the first five books. Those are the books of Moses because Moses wrote them. Then after that, we moved into the historical books. Historical books. Who remembers what those are? So we have, what does it say, the Torah, and then historical books. Historical goes from what? Joshua 2. We just finished last week. Esther. So quite a few, right? Quite a few. And what are all of these books, the Torah and Esther, what is that what is that teaching us? What is that telling us? The main focus of those books are history of Israel. Yeah. Mankind originally, but then it narrows down quickly to Abraham by Genesis twelve. And then from there all the way through Esther, it's Abraham and his physical descendants, the nation Israel. Now though, we're starting a new section uh, called the wisdom books. The wisdom books. And these are not about Abraham. These are not about Israel. These aren't even about salvation, which I'll mention in a moment. These are wisdom. These are about God's wisdom. Specifically, God's wisdom built into creation that all mankind really has access to, but, but since people aren't looking for it, and since people aren't thanking God and honoring God, they often ignore it, they often go against it, and they often suffer because of it. So the wisdom books. What are the wisdom books? Today we're covering Job. Job, what else? Some Psalms, not all Psalms. Some Psalms, all Psalms are poetry, and most of Job is poetry, but not all of the Psalms are wisdom Psalms. Some are. What else? Proverbs. That's probably what you think of when you think of wisdom, Proverbs. Song of Solomon, some would classify that as wisdom. Um, I, I would say maybe. We'll, we'll wait till have that discussion when we get there. So, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. And there's another big one. Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes. So, these three, I think, are written all by the same person, uh, Solomon. So, yeah, wisdom books right there. We're going to cover those. And uh, there are, there's wisdom teaching elsewhere. 
Jesus says wise sayings. Uh, not, not just directly, here's what believers should do, but he also just says little sayings, little proverbs. And there are wisdom instructions and wisdom teachings throughout Scripture, but these books focus all on wisdom, except just some of the Psalms. So what is the meaning of wisdom? When we think of wisdom in English, what do we think of? Somebody maybe who's smart, intelligent, somebody who has lots of knowledge, or makes really good decisions. And it's actually the last one who makes good decisions. That's the closest to the Bible's use of wisdom. The Hebrew word is chokmah, and it just means wisdom, but it's not knowledge. It is skill. Skill in using what you know. So in the Bible, it's used in various places to speak of technical skills. So men, if you do whatever you do for work with your hands, or women, when you do work with your hands, that's wisdom. It takes wisdom to do that well. So those who did well with metal and woodworking built the temple. They had wisdom in the use of their hands to work with gold, to work with silver, to work with wood. Those who make idols, even though it's sinful to do so, it takes, it takes skill. Professional mourners, even in Jeremiah 9.17, this word is used. They have skill in what they do in their mourning process. And sailors have skill with sailing. Also, skill when it comes to the administration of the state. So it's not just skill in working with your hands, but how you administer. How you administer, you could say your household, uh, but specifically in the Bible, even the state. So Joseph has skill, that's why he's promoted. Uh, He has wisdom. And then, is, are you saying whenever you're using those references, that word, Hokma? Yes, it comes up. All right, form of it. We'll look at different forms of it here in a minute. But they're said to have wisdom in the thing that they're doing. So Joseph, the tribal leaders in Deuteronomy, uh, David, Solomon, and Daniel. So not just skill with your hands, but also skill with your mind, skill with applying what you know. And often with these people, it comes from God. God is blessing them to have the skill that they have to administer the state. So what's a good definition? Well, you'll see in your handout the skill of being able to form and execute the correct plan to gain the desired result. So in the Bible, wisdom literature we're going to find is teaching us and reminding us and pointing us to wisdom which is the skill to form and execute a plan in your life for God's glory. So it's divine. Wisdom comes from God. We're going to learn that. Uh, Proverbs says a lot about that. It's the source of life. Through God's wisdom, he created all things. It's moral, too. Even though it's not technically law, law would be Deuteronomy. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. But it's wisdom. It tells you that if you do this, things are generally going to go well. And if you do this evil thing, this sinful thing, things will not go well for you. So it's very similar to the law in that regard. The results are the same. It's just how the books go about teaching us is a bit different. Uh, It is available to all who will hear. Proverbs 1 talks about that. So even the unbeliever can read this and understand it much easier than they could understand other parts of the Bible. 
But do unbelievers really understand wisdom literature? Do they really attribute wisdom being from God? If you've ever been to sort of Christian business meetings, they will cite sometimes Proverbs. That's, the, that's sort of the favorite um, passage of business folks. And they'll often take them out of context and do whatever they want with them because they understand the Proverbs are talking about blessing and if you do such and such, you're going to be blessed. The problem is they don't recognize always the, the source. Uh, believers need to recognize where this wisdom comes from and how to use it and why it was given. But it is available to all who hear. The problem is, with the depraved heart, mankind doesn't listen. And occasionally, oh, I like this proverb. I like this proverb. This one talks about money. This one talks about debt. Those things are true, but we have to realize that's God's wisdom coming to us through these books. So what kind of wisdom literature are we talking about? Well, proverbial sayings, little short sayings, little catchy sayings. Those are called Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is full of little sayings that show wisdom. You don't read Proverbs as you read Paul. Paul's letters have an argument and it flows throughout the whole letter. You might read a proverb and then the very next verse is not connected to the one that you just read. So proverbial sayings, uh, moral exhortations, do this thing, and be blessed. Do this thing, even in the Proverbs, do this because you fear God. Do this because God will bless you. So do the right thing and don't do the wrong thing. Again, Proverbs 1 through 9 focuses on that. Extended wisdom discourse. So there are times in Job, and really Ecclesiastes, the whole book, is just a teaching about wisdom in general. What is wisdom? And Ecclesiastes sort of goes through what's not wisdom, all the things that Solomon tried in his life, and then by the end, he talks about what wisdom truly is. And Job, you get the sense throughout the whole book of what wisdom is, but right in the middle, in chapter 28, he has this poem on wisdom, telling you what it truly is. And then it's also found in poetic form, Psalm 1, Psalm 37, that the poem in Job 28 and then Proverbs 8 is also uh, a poetic section about wisdom. And people think that's Christ in Proverbs 8. We'll get there when we get to Proverbs. I don't think it's Christ. It's lady wisdom. It's, it's a personification of wisdom. How often does this come up in these books? Well, the word, hokma, which means wisdom, the noun, comes up six times in Psalms. The word wise, two times, and on down the list. So what are you noticing here as you look at this chart? Well, Job and Proverbs have a lot. Look at this. Wisdom is a main focus of those books. Not so much in Psalms, because not every Psalm is on wisdom. But Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes have a lot to say. Um, and also what it means to be wise, 47 times in Proverbs, 21 times and Ecclesiastes. So look at how much the Bible is teaching us on wisdom. What is wisdom? The skill, remember the skill to form up and execute a plan, specifically in our case, the skill to use what we know of God's word and live accordingly. So when Paul says, for example, in Ephesians 4, 
Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. But when you ask the question, how am I supposed to do that? What does that look like? Who can I look at as an example of that? We're talking about wisdom when it comes to living the Christian life. Because Gary might know the same Bible verses as Autumn, but they might practice that and use that a little bit differently. And so Gary has wisdom and Autumn has wisdom and all of us have wisdom, but we need to be sharpened in that. We need to get better at taking what we know and then living it out. What are some characteristics of wisdom literature? One of the focuses, it addresses the individual. It's talking directly to you. You probably enjoy wisdom if you do enjoy it because it seems so direct. When you're reading about Abraham, that's about Abraham. When you're reading about the 12 tribes, when you're reading about Joshua, that's nice, that's historical, but it's first talking to God's people at that time. Then it speaks to us today as God's people. But it's not focused, wisdom literature is not focused on the children of Israel. The rest of the Old Testament is. The prophets, which we'll come to, the historical books, the Torah, directly focused on Israel. Do this, you're God's people, you must do this. Here's what God has said. Here's what happens if you don't do it. Wisdom literature, speaking to the wise man, the person who wants to be wise. In fact, if we take Job as the author of Job, we have a man who wrote a big book in the Old Testament that's not even an Israelite. He's not even a Jew. The authority is in moral experience, how you live out your life before God, and training yourself with your intelligence. The intelligence that God has given you, not just your ability, but what you know of Scripture. So living a life before God that honors Him based on what He has given you as far as the tools. So you're going to have a nice tool shed, right, Mike? But if you don't know how to use those tools, it doesn't matter. But it takes skill to use those tools. If I try to use some of the tools that David uses for work, I would probably make a mess. That would not be fun when it comes to septic, right? But it takes, it takes skill to use tools. You have to be trained how to do it, and then you practice doing it, and then you can sometimes even tweak your process a bit. And it's the same way in the Christian life. You get better and better. Uh, the concern, it's said, is with the workaday world. Just your everyday life in this world. You're not going to see matters of eternal salvation. You're not going to see description of heaven. There's hints here and there, of course. There's hints about the Messiah, but it's not focused on the Messiah. This is just your everyday life. This is why new believers can really attach to a book like Proverbs and love it right away. What are we seeing in the rest of the books of the Old Testament? Well, we're seeing a lot about salvation. We're seeing a lot about how to worship, Leviticus, Exodus, the prophets. We're seeing a lot about holiness. Now, holiness will result from God's wisdom, but the wisdom books are not specifically talking about holiness. They're talking about how to live your life before God, and of course, if you're doing it right, that would lead to holiness. The method is counsel. So these books are counseling us, and they're instructing us, but look what it's based on. The created order. What God has already built into the world. Wisdom, the wisdom literature, speaks of the created order. This is the way things are. It's not pointing you back to Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 3. It's not saying, remember your covenant with the Lord. That's covenant literature. That's 
the Torah. That's the historical books. That's the prophets. No, these books are saying this is the way God has designed things in his creation. You need to understand that, these writers are saying, so it will help you live a life before God. Let's understand God's providence. Let's understand God's sovereignty. And so they're not citing other books often in the Old Testament. Covenant literature, who's that to? Again, that's to Israel. God made a covenant with Abraham. That's who the Bible in the Old Testament is given to, to Abraham and his descendants. We inherit it as Christians because we're the spiritual seed of Abraham as Gentiles. But the focus on wisdom literature is the created order. So let's just summarize it all. The two different kinds of literature we really find in the Old Testament. One is salvation covenant literature. That's what we've been looking at up until this point. For the covenant people of God, covenant literature obviously is for the covenant people and is tied to the people's unique purpose of glorifying God through salvation. So what's the focus of the Torah? How to be saved. How to obey God once you are saved. How God saves people from the beginning of time. What God's plan is for salvation. What about the New Testament? What's the New Testament focus on? Christ. Why did Christ come? To save the world, to save sinners. So most of the Bible is focused on glorifying God through salvation. Wisdom literature, these books we're about to look at, this is universal. It's for all peoples. But those who know God understand wisdom literature rightly because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So an unbeliever, again, can look at, look at a couple of verses in Job and they can probably make sense of it. They're going to have a hard time with the whole book of Job. Christians have a hard time with that. Uh, unbelievers can take a proverb here, take a proverb there. But in Proverbs, and in Job even, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's, it's really hard to live truly a wise life before God unless you fear Him first. So it's for the believer, but it can be understood by all peoples to some extent. Why? Because it's in the created order. It's built in. So people will notice things even if they're unbelievers. They'll notice that murder is wrong. They will believe that in their hearts. Why? Because God put it there. Romans 1 tells us God created us to know that there is a God, to look at creation and know that there's a God and that we should give him thanks, but we don't. Any questions on wisdom literature in general? You guys got it all down? You ready for the quiz? Okay, let's talk about Job. Job's one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. It always has been, but I took a class on it in seminary. We had a visiting professor come and, and for a week, all we did was Job all day long. And he was from Southern Seminary, and they invited him to come out and teach his class. And he gave some insights I had not heard, and I'm going to share those, some of those with you today and next week. And uh, it opened my eyes, I think, to understand Job better. And it sort of helped me with some mis misinterpretations that maybe I had at certain points in Job. So I love Job. I've always liked it. I love that it gives us behind-the-scenes look into God and chapters 1 and 2 and at the end. I love that it mentions mysterious creatures like the Leviathan and behemoth. Uh, and I just love the overall message. Even though it's about suffering, um, I think it helps us as we go through suffering to understand the book of Job. 
What's the title? Job. Doesn't matter if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, or English. It's just always been Job. It's named after the person who is described in the book. The date. This is an interesting problem. I thought about moving it to the interpretive issues, but I want to just go ahead and put it up here at the front. Since we can't know for certain, um, let's talk about it a bit. When is Job written? Anybody know? Anybody have revelation from God on this? Some have said probably during David's reign or someone, either David or someone during his reign. That was sort of the high point. David and Solomon were the high point of the kingdom of Israel and and the God's people were writing and worshiping and singing psalms. A lot of psalms were written during David's reign. Others would say Moses. And then others, and I would agree with this last viewpoint, the pre-Abrahamic, meaning before Abraham, or up until Abraham is called by God to go into the land. I would even entertain maybe at the same time as Abraham. Uh, I don't think it's David for some of the reasons we'll look at, or Solomon during their time. Probably the most popular today is Solomon by both conservative and, and liberal. Liberals will push it all the way back to, almost to Jesus' day. Um, but they'll argue for Solomon because that was sort of the great poetic age in Israel. I think there are many indications it's before Abraham. So I've listed those on your handout. There's no mention of any of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's no mention of Moses. If, if it was before then, you wouldn't expect a mention of it. But if it's after these, they could be used as an example. Now again, this is wisdom literature, so it's not really citing all other places. But if it's the first book of the Bible written, then it wouldn't cite any other books anyway. There's nothing else written yet. It doesn't mention the monarchy or David's line at all. And here's a big one. It d- doesn't talk about temple and sacrifices, which again, it's wisdom literature, so we might not expect that. But Job sacrifices at the beginning and at the end. And he doesn't do it with priests. And he doesn't do it according to Leviticus rules. And he doesn't do it at the temple, which is the only place that you're supposed to sacrifice after the temple is built in Solomon's day. So that's pretty big. To, to be able to sacrifice, what happened when Saul sacrificed as the king of Israel. It was bad, right? He sinned. He said, well, look, Samuel, you took too long. I just went ahead and did the sacrifice. And Samuel says, you have done what you wanted and not what God wanted. You have sinned this day. So it's, once you have Leviticus written, or Exodus even, it is a sin just to take your sacrifice and do what you want with it. There are specific prescribed rules. So that puts us before Moses. Job's lifespan, 200 years at least. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. His his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So there's seven sons and there's three daughters. Ten kids. I have a little experience towards this number. The youngest he could probably be is 60 if he started having kids at an early age. 
um, with miscarriages, sicknesses, illnesses, probably a little older than that. Most people estimate around 70. I would say the youngest he is at this point is 60 because he's had a kid, let's say, every two years, and then they've all grown up. So the last kid he had, they're all grown up 60. I think when she's 18, I'll be a little over 60. So 60 years old. Now go to the end of the book, 42.16. Once everything is restored to Job, God blesses him with more children. 42.16. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So 140 is after the events of the book take place. So if he's already 60 or 70, that's 200 plus years. We don't see those lifespans until before Abraham. Before Noah, we would expect up in the six to 900 years. Yeah. So before the flood, they were living eight, 900 years. Yeah. But Abraham, and around that time, people were still living a long time, particularly if they were blessed by God. And this is a special, obviously, it's a special blessing. I don't think everybody lived 200 years then. Also, this name for God, it comes up 41 times. Eloah. It's in a few other places in the Bible, but Eloah is a name for God that is, is an older name. I don't think I finished that point there, but it's an older name for God. It shows up early on in the history of Israel, and it's not really used later. Later, it just becomes El, or Elohim. So Eloah is an older name for God, indicating uh, something maybe before Abraham. And then also wealth, wealth of Abraham, I mean the wealth of Job, sorry, is measured in herds, flocks, and servants. Who else in the Bible is their wealth measured in herds, flocks, and servants? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now there are kings later who are mentioned, but they also talk about gold and money. There's no money, in other words. There's no kingdom. If this was written in the time of David or Solomon, we would expect mention of money, gold castles or or fortresses so i think these point to before abraham also place names point to before abraham some of the names in the book and other minor issues i think the biggest one is is this one here that job sacrifices without priests that's that's a big one and then the 200 year lifespan so maybe he was living while abraham was living but that's about as late as I would think. Uh, the author, we don't know. I'm going to take it as Job, because who else knows the intimate details of his story other than Job? But it, it's, it could be somebody later that Job told the story to. What's the theme of this book? This is important. This is key. Suffering and sovereignty. That's what the book is about when you read it. It's about Job's suffering and God's sovereignty. And when we read it, it's to encourage us to be faithful, even though we don't understand what God's doing, even though we don't understand what's happening in God's sovereignty and His providence, we are to be faithful. We are not to sit around questioning God, complaining. 
If we were to expand that to a purpose, why, why is it included in our scriptures? To encourage the faithful with perseverance. It's not a book about why Job suffered. It's not even a book about why people suffer. If you look for that, you're going to miss it. It's a book about how to suffer the right way. That's why it's here. God wants his people to know how to suffer and what better illustration of that than this righteous man named Job who did not sin, but yet he suffered so much. So is sin, the question really the book addresses is, is suffering always due to sin? We certainly know suffering is due to sin, but is it always due to sin? That's the question. Or is it according to God's wisdom? And has God built that into the world for this age so that he would be glorified through even our suffering? Those are questions the book seeks to answer. Uh, an outline. I think it's important to see, especially these, these cycles. Before we get into the outline of the speeches, though, let's just go to chapters 1 and 2. A lot of theology is taught in chapter 1 and 2 about God. So let's just take off reading here. There was a man in the land of Uz. No one knows quite where that is. Whose name was Job. So Job's from Uz probably somewhere out in the desert somewhere, east of Israel. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's the first verse. And that verse is the foundation for the rest of the book. Job is blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. Is he perfect? No one's perfect but Christ. No one's perfect but God. That's not what it means in the Old Testament and even in the gospel accounts when people are said to be righteous. What it means is they're, they're following God with all their heart. They're, they're obeying what God has told them to do. Are they doing it perfectly? No. But when they sin, they what? They repent. And they turn back to God and they continue following him. Whereas an unrighteous person, they don't even care. They're doing what they want. They sin and they don't repent. They keep going and doing whatever they like. So in verse 2, seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions were, and it lists all the wealth that he had, many servants. He was the greatest of all the men of the East. So not only was he a righteous man, blameless before God, but he also had great wealth and he was the greatest, meaning the, probably the wealthiest of the people East of Israel, which Israel wasn't even a state. I'm just talking about the land. Palestine, if you, if you like to think of it that way. His sons used to go hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. They would invite the sisters. When the feasting had completed their cycle, in verse 5, look at this, Job would sin and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he's not just sacrificing for himself, but he's actually performing a kind of a priestly service over his family where he's sacrificing for his sons, for his children. Why? Well, they may have uh, sinned in their feasting and celebrations. They may have gotten out of hand a bit. So just in case, everybody gather around and he says, I'm going to perform these sacrifices before God. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So now we're... We're not on the earth anymore, but we're before God's throne. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? 
So who's the first one to speak? God. What's Satan even doing there in the first place? That's, that's probably what you're wondering. Well, he still has access. He's an angel. Um, God has not, I, I, I don't think God has yet barred the way. That's going to come in Revelation 12, where he's completely cast out. He's been thrown down, and he's roaming the earth. But when all the angels are called before God, somehow he still has access. We don't really know how that works. So he says, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. What it means here is he's been trying to tempt people. He roams the earth, prowling around like a lion, trying to tempt people. He is trying to tempt people to sin. Unbelievers love it. Believers, followers of God are resisting it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Who brings up Job's name first? God does. This isn't Satan's idea. This whole scenario is God's idea. Why? To test Job. To test Job and to, to teach Satan a, a lesson, but also to teach us a lesson as well. It's recorded for us to learn from. Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth. So again, I think Abraham's not alive yet, or at least not saved yet, or otherwise God couldn't say this. There's no one like him, blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So he's telling Satan, look, here's, a, here's the man you want to test. This is the most upright man. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him in his house, all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. So of course he has everything. You've protected him, God. You've given him everything. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So Satan's kind of making a wager. Just see what happens. Remove your hand and let me do what I want with him, and then he'll curse you. Then he'll turn from you. In other words, the only reason Job loves you, Lord, loves you, God, is because what you've given him. Prosperity gospel kind of thinking. And so the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So he loses everything except his own personal health. He loses his family. And God uses the means of others to do it. It's not like suddenly things just disappear. There are people who come in and raid his area. The Chaldeans formed three bands in verse 17 and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And one servant escaped to tell him. So he's getting these messengers, one after the other. Verse 14, uh, oxen were plowing and donkeys were feeding and the Sabaeans attacked and they slew everybody out there. And then 18, while this servant that was still speaking about the Chaldeans Another came also, another servant. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people and they died. I alone have escaped to tell you. So everything, his family's taken, his wealth is taken, his, his money, everything he has except his own personal self and his wife. That's it. Now notice, what does Satan say back in verse 9, 10? Have you not made a hedge about him? And then 11, 
but put forth your hand. Satan says, put forth your hand, God. You put this on him and see what happens. And then God says, okay, go ahead, do it. And Satan does it. So who did it? God or Satan? Satan did it. But Satan put, says, put forth your hand. And now look what Job says in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So from Job's standpoint, Satan never comes up. Anything that happens in the universe has got to happen because of God first and foremost. Yes, yeah, Satan did it, but it was God who permitted it. And Job says, hey, this is from the Lord. Even though it's evil, even though it, obviously it comes from the evil one, this is ultimately from God. This is from God. So we have to accept it if it's from the Lord. So chapter 2, back in the throne room, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan. So this whole thing repeats itself. And God says in 2, 3, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. So all this bad stuff happens, and he didn't sin. He didn't curse God. God's even saying this in chapter 2. There's no one like him. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now that's interesting. You incited me. Now, obviously, no one can force God. But Satan basically said, look, take it away. See what happens. And so God says, look, you wanted this to happen. Now it happened. And he still has not turned. You understand no one can force God to do it. It's not like Satan and God are equal. And there's this battle going on. Satan's on a leash. This is the book that teaches us that. Satan can't do anything without God's permission. That's Satan's whole point. Well, I can't do anything. If you let me do what I want with him, then he'll curse you. So verse 4, Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. Of course, the, the idea here is, of course, a man will do anything to save his skin. He doesn't really care about everything else. All Job cares about is his own skin. Yes, all that the man has, he will give for his life. So skin for skin, he cares about his own skin. Let me do that. Verse 5, however, put forth your hand, God. It's up to God. It's up to God first and foremost. Put forth your hand. Touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a potsherd and he scraped himself and he sat on the ashes. His wife says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Just sin against God and go on and die. Let it be over with. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Who's doing this? Job says God's doing this. He doesn't give Satan any credit. This is all from God. This is God doing this. Good and bad, ultimately, it all comes from God for a reason. Here's the key. In all this... Job did not sin with his lips. Two times, a big test. A bigger test than we probably will ever face. And yet he did not sin. 
He did not sin. He did not curse God with his mouth. He did not turn away from God. So now the three friends come, and they heard about what happened to Job. Three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they're going to pontificate on why this has happened to Job. They've got the answer. And, and these are real people, I think, in history, but they also fit different categories of people that will tell you why things are happening in your life, especially if you're suffering and don't know why. So there's three cycles. They get rougher and rougher, these friends do. First they start out and they say, we're just here to comfort you. We're just here to help you. And then Job responds. And then they say, look, you're being stubborn. Then they get a little bit forceful, more forceful. And then the third cycle, they really let loose. And, and they just straight out say, look, you're a sinner. You need to repent. And Zophar doesn't even show up. All, everything's been said. We don't even need Zophar here. If we were to make it look exactly equal, because you've got Zophar, Zophar, but he's not here in the third cycle. Maybe he's too mad. Zophar is probably the, the harshest of them. Maybe the idea is he's just so angry. He's done. Nothing else needs to be said. So three cycles. Are these friends helping Job at all? No. What's their point? You're a sinner. Repent. This happened because of your sin. You're not a blameless and righteous man, Job. You must be the worst sinner because look at how much bad stuff has happened. All the bad stuff that's happened to you has got to be equal to all the sin that you've done. You're the worst. You're just, you're, you're a maggot, they say. You're like a worm. Now they say mankind, but they're directing it to Job. Then in chapter 28, not listed on here because it's not really a speech, it's a poem. Um, Job talks about God's wisdom. Or some say God is talking in Job 28. I think it's probably Job as he's writing. It's an interlude. It's a, let's stop now and recap what this book is about. Then Job gives his final speech in 29 through 31. And he says, you know, look, I just want to get a court case with God. If I could just stand before God, then I would know why this has happened. I don't know why this has happened. It's not because of my sin. Why has this happened to me? I want an answer. I want an answer. If I can just get before God, I'll get my answer. In other words, he wants to be like God. He wants to know what God knows. Well, then this new guy shows up. Elihu. Some think it's God himself. Some think it's a spokesman for God. He's kind of a mysterious figure. He's a young guy. He says, look, I've held back. I've held back and I've waited. I listened to these old guys try to give you wisdom. They just made me mad. You're making me mad, Job. Let me just tell you. So he gives four speeches. Then all these guys are done. Everybody's given their best and God shows up. And I love that section where God just shows up and starts asking Job questions. He doesn't punish Job. He just asks questions. Were you there when I created all these wonderful things? Where's your wisdom? You want a court case before me? Well, you're not going to get it. But think about this. Where were you when my wisdom did all these wonderful things? And in the end, Job says, yeah, I don't, I don't want a court case before you, God. You're God. I submit I don't know why this happened, but I'm going to follow you. So key passages. We looked at chapters 1 and 2. I want to show you the stealthy spirit because I did not see this. No one really points it out. I took this class with Dwayne Garrett 
and he makes a big case. This is a, an interpretive key to the book. Stealthy spirit. Go to chapter 4 and verse 12. So what are the friends, what's their big argument? That God is perfectly holy and that man is nothing. And so you're nothing, basically you're on dust and ashes. That's, that's what man is. And you've just sinned like what's to be expected. So look at what God has done. So we're going to see something. We're going to see this spirit, and he talks to Eliphaz, who's the first speaker here. So look at verse 12. Eliphaz is talking to Job, and he says, I know I'm right. Here's why. A word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night. So this guy is not in a, in a happy, joyful place here. He's having very disquieting thoughts, and he hears a, a word, he hears a vision. When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face, the hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes, there was silence, then I heard a voice. So listen to what the spirit says. Can mankind be just before God? Hmm. Can man be pure before his maker? That doesn't sound too bad. 18. He puts no trust even in his servants. God puts no trust even in his servants, which are the angels here. And against his angels, he charges error. So look. Can man be just? Can man even be just before God? Is anyone really righteous? I mean, come on. Job, you say you're righteous. You say you're blameless. Is anyone righteous? Is anyone blameless? God doesn't even trust his own angels. He charges angels with error, the angels that fell. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, mankind, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. So we're just dust. Between morning and evening, they're broken in pieces. I mean, God doesn't care that much about us. We're just broken into pieces. Unobserved, they perish forever. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? This is the idea of a life force, the, the spirit. They die, yet without wisdom. Man is not even wise. He just dies. It's all over. It's finished. So that's the message of the spirit. Now we read that, and, and if we're really up to speed on New Testament, we say, oh yeah, total depravity. You know, man is but dust. He's but ashes. No, this isn't total depravity. This is God is holy and high on his throne, and he doesn't care about any of his creation. That's the theology that the Spirit here is mentioning. This Spirit is saying, look, no one cares. God surely doesn't care. So whatever's happening to you, Job, it's just, that's normal life. And you must have really sinned because it's so bad. Now, go to 15, 14. And another friend almost quotes Eliphaz's revelation. This is really a revelation. It's a, I think, a demonic revelation. This is why you don't listen to people who, who say they have a spirit. They tell you, look, I have a, a spirit revealed something to me. What kind of spirit? See, Eliphaz is saying, I know this is true because the Spirit told me. And he's assuming Job will say, oh, it must be from God. And God spoke in many different ways back then through prophets and through angels. 
but I don't think that's an angel of God. That's not a holy angel. 15.14. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of woman, that he should be righteous? There's no way people can be righteous. That's what they're saying. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, angels, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. So even the angels aren't all pure. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, man who drinks iniquity like water. You see the subtle message coming across here through these friends? God hates mankind. And it's really no wonder things like this happen, Job. It's no wonder. God, God really doesn't care. And if he cares, it's only to punish. Just do our best. Now go to the final speech. All the friends are giving these speeches. And the final speech is Bildad. And look how he finishes out. Again, this Spirit's message here. It's very similar to what we saw in chapter 4. How then can man be just with God? Or how can he be clean? Who was born of woman. If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, so even the angels refer to as stars here, they're not even pure. How much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. That's, that's worse than total depravity. Total depravity says we're created in the image of God, but we have fallen into sin. We're born in sin. We have chosen to go into sin. The Spirit's message that we see throughout the friends in chapters 4 through 25 is more than that. That's, this guy's saying, look, God doesn't care. He created us and he sort of backed off and we just die without wisdom. One day you're alive, the next day you die. We're just maggots, we're just worms. This isn't like those hymns we sing, well, you know, such a worm as I. That's personal reflection upon your own sin. These are friends pontificating, right? These are theologians saying, we're nothing. We're just maggots. What do you have to complain to God about, Job? You're just a maggot. You're just a worm. Stop, stop asking questions. You don't deserve any answer. That's different. When God shows up, what does God do? He doesn't say, you're a maggot, get out of my face. He doesn't say, you're a worm, who are you to question me? He just says, let me show you my wisdom in just a few questions. And so he I think graciously goes through and questions Job to teach Job about God's wisdom. We'll have more to say, I think, later about the, the Spirit's message. Let me double check. Y'all want to talk about that now? We have five minutes. No, it's not on the handout. Okay. I, I, I printed notes separately for it. Let's talk about it since we have five minutes. No, you can't burn up my five minutes, but you can ask a question. Here's why I think it's a demon. It's an uncanny, mysterious, vague, and, and, and there's paralyzing fear that this guy has, Eliphaz, in chapter 4. There's dread. It's the dark of the night. In the Bible, an angel of the Lord's never described like this. What do they say when they show up? People fall down, right? And they're fearful. And what do the angels usually say? Fear not. Fear not. I have a message from the Lord. I'm here to encourage you. Angels are servants of God. They come to encourage. At least God's people. Um, so I don't think this is an angel of the Lord. This angel never gives assurance to Eliphaz, like we see in Genesis and Judges and all the way through the New Testament. Also, it's a stealthy message. It came to me stealthily. 
the idea in Hebrew is that it's stolen. It's a very a peculiar word they use here, and it's never used anywhere else. In fact, one of the things that makes Job really hard to understand and translate is there's a lot of words that aren't found anywhere else in the Bible, in Hebrew. Which again, if it's the oldest book in the Bible, written before Moses, long before Moses started writing, you would expect a lot of, a lot of words that aren't used by the time we get to Moses. This is one of those words. It would seem to suggest that it's an illicit message. It's, it's something that the demonic spirit has he shouldn't have gotten. It's kind of an uneasy message. Also, the spirit doesn't take a shape. What happens when angels show up in the Bible? They usually take a shape. Shape of a man. Shape of something, a light. This is, you, you can't even, he can't even pin the spirit down. It's sort of shapeless, formless, frightening. And then the context. Chapters 1 and 2, what's the context? Evil spirits patrol the earth. Where has Satan been? Roaming around the earth. Oh, by the way, here's a spirit in chapter 4 who whispers in the friend's ear. What is the message? No one's pure before God. So if we go back to 4.17 real quick. I'll just run through and then we'll have time for Mike's question. I just want to show you on each verse what the message is. Verse 17, can man be just before God? In other words, is anyone pure? No, no one's pure. And so he starts out with something that they can all accept. Verse 18, he doesn't even trust his angels. So the Spirit says, even the angels are sinners, which are, it's not really fully true because, yeah, the demons sin, but they're still holy angels, which the Spirit doesn't mention. It would have been better if he said, look, there's holy angels and there's demonic angels. But since this is a demon, he's trying to cause doubt. He's trying to cause fear, dread. Verse 19, how much more are those who dwell in clay houses? Again, talking about how humans are just dust. They're, they're utterly foul. Um, God charges angels with error, but how much more does he charge human beings is the idea. Verse 20, they die without any significance. They're weak. They fall apart. And verse 21, they die in ignorance. They have no idea what's going on. They don't know anything. And so the whole point is, humans are foul, disgusting, loathsome, maggots. We saw that by the end. I think this is helpful in seeing the message. These are people of the world talking to Job, trying to make sense of things. They don't have the Bible. They can't just break out, oh, let me show you what happened to Joseph in Egypt. It's before the Bible's written. So they're doing the best with what they have, but they're taking a worldly view of things. And they're just saying, yeah, come on, we know God is holy, and we're just nothing. So stop your questioning, repent of your sin, and let's get on with life. This is just the way things are. Is that true? Or does God care about his creation? Or does God love mankind even though mankind is sinful. Yeah, he has a general love for mankind. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. He gives children to the just and the unjust. He lets mankind continue going until he sends his son back. So this isn't quite true. It's just enough to get a person thinking in the wrong direction. And then they keep being legalistic and charging uh, Job with the fact that he must have sinned before God. Now, if he sinned before God, we don't really need anything after chapters 1 and 2. You realize that? 
if Job sins, why do we have the rest of the book? Now, some people say, well, he sins later in his attitude. And we'll get to that next week. You've got to come back next week to hear, did Job sin or not? Because in chapters 1 and 2, it says he did not sin. And that was the biggest test. The test isn't living with a few boils on his skin. The test is having your whole family wiped out and then having all of this disease fall upon you when you were once really blessed and had everything. Any other quick questions before we finish up? You've got to come back next week. I'm going to go through the rest. The wisdom poem is one of my favorites in chapter 28. We're going to look at these friends and sort of uh, the arguments they're using, what they represent. Also, what was Job's sickness? We'll have to solve that problem. And you see the other ones down there. Did Job sin? What's the Leviathan? What's the behemoth? What's the behemoth, Chris? Sasquatch. Okay, well, let's close up and y'all can think about those questions between now and next week. God, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to live a a life before you that is honoring, that is glorifying to you. Help us not just to be memory banks of Scripture, but to live it out, to apply it, to use skill in how we live in this world. It's a sinful world. It's a, a difficult world. There's suffering in this world. Give us skill. Help us to be practiced, trained, disciplined in our lifestyles as we live out a life for Christ. We do pray this in His name. Amen.